Good morning. My name is Joshua Weemy. I'll be reading uh, Genesis 19, 1 through 29 from the English Standard Version this morning. So, the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house, spend the night, and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we'll spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And then he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the, so the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house, and they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us, that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you, and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand back. And they said, This fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who are to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you will be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to them, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? My life will be saved. He said to them, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zor. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zor. Then the Lord rained down on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley 
and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord, and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. All right. Thank you, Josh. Well, good morning. just want to welcome you all here. For those of you who might not know me, my name is Jonathan. I'm the campus pastor here. Uh, today, we, we have quite a text in, in front of us, right? This is, uh, this is one of those texts that you come to and you don't necessarily walk away feeling, you know, light and happy and joyful. This is kind of one of those that you come to and you kind of feel, whew, that's a heavy text. That's, there, there's a lot there and that's not something to just kind of skip over, over lightly. And so this morning, uh, we're going to take some time to, to walk through this, and we're going to kind of take it apart piece by piece. And so if you have been with us for the last little while, you'll know we, we've been walking through the life of Abraham for some time, and this is really just the next chapter in our series. And so if you're wondering, sort of, why did we choose that text for today? Well, well there's the reason. It's, it's the next part of the story. In fact, if you remember from last week, Abraham was actually pleading with God to, to save these cities. And he asked, well, if there's even 10 righteous people, would you spare the cities? And God agrees, but this morning we, we just heard the conclusion to that story. See, whenever we come to these kinds of chapters, there's always this, well, impulse there's this sort of temptation that says, well, maybe we should just skip right over this. This is, this is heavy. This is kind of, this is, this is depressing even to look at. So maybe we just skip right over that and go to something a little bit nicer, a little bit happier. But the truth is this text acts for us as a warning. Right? It's intended to be a, a warning for us, just like if you're driving along the road and suddenly you see warning signs for something that's up ahead. Maybe it's construction, it's telling you that the road's going to change, there's people going to be on the road, or that the road has been taken apart itself. It's warning you for what is coming up ahead. It's the same thing with our health. We have all kinds of, of warning signs for when we're not doing well, when we're not healthy, right? If you suddenly are having chest pains and you can't quite lift one arm, those are warning signs you shouldn't just ignore, shouldn't just skip over. It's probably telling you you're having a heart attack, Right? If you suddenly start slurring your speech, you can't see straight, you can't walk straight, you can't lift one side of your body, those are warning signs that you're having a stroke. In fact, there was a story not too long ago. It was a, a teenage girl down in the States. Uh, she woke up one morning, and she was feeling fine, but she had a little bit of a headache. And so she had this headache and, and felt a little bit like anxious, a little bit short of breath and wasn't really sure what's going on, but she thought, ah, I'm fine, I'll just get over it, it's no big deal. That was until her, her Apple Watch started firing off warning signs to her, telling her that her heart rate was unusually high, especially because she was just sitting still. In fact, her heart rate had gone up to 190 beats per minute. 
That is an all-out sprint as fast as you can go. I mean, that is a major problem. She ended up going into the hospital because her watch kept on blinking at her and giving her all these warnings. Turns out she was having kidney failure. Right? Warnings aren't meant to be just ignored, to be pushed off to the side. Actually, they are intended to be looked at and considered seriously. And so that's really what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at this text, at the, the warning that God gives to us and ask, well, what is it calling us to do? What is this warning us of? And so this morning, I, I know it's a heavy text, but I think it will be for our great benefit to look through it carefully. But of course, the challenge with this text is that it comes with a lot of questions, right? comes with a lot of questions as we, as we look at this text and at this warning, and, and probably one of the big ones that comes up right away is just simply, how can God do this? Why does God do this? Why does a loving God destroy two cities? It's a decent question to ask. How is it that the Bible says God loves us and yet this is also what He does? How do we put those two pictures together of the God who loves and also the God of judgment? So this morning, that's what I want us to look at as we walk through this passage. There's a lot of questions that we probably also could ask and we'll try and answer some, but that's the main one we're going to focus on this morning. Why does a God of love bring judgment? So this morning as we walk through, I invite you to open to Genesis 19 if you have a Bible with you. And we're going to essentially stop in a couple different places, three places I want us to, to consider. The first is really just to ask what is going on in this city? What is the sin of Sodom? How are they acting? Why is this judgment coming? So we're going to look at the sin of Sodom. Secondly, then we're going to look at this judgment itself. Why is God bringing on this judgment? And then finally, I want us to see the mercy of God. See the love of God in display, even in a text like this. All right? So that's our framework for this morning. So let's, let's start back at the beginning of our chapter. Verse 1, we're introduced to these two angels, right? Two angels come into the city of Sodom. And if you've been with us for a little while, you'll probably recognize we've talked about these angels. We've already met them before in the story. Last chapter, they showed up with God and spoke with Abraham for, for quite some time. And so we know already what these angels are there to do. They are sent by God to go investigate Sodom and see what is going on in this city. And so we're introduced to them, and they're doing exactly that. They come into the city, and Lot meets them right away. It's a little bit reminiscent of when Abraham meets them. Immediately he says, come into my house, I'll make you something to eat, I'll extend to you this, this hospitality. What's so interesting there, look at verse 3, or verse 2, pardon me. Uh, it says, my lords, please turn aside to your servant's house, spend the night and wash your feet, then you may rise up early and go on your way. And they said, no, we'll spend the night in the town square. Seems like an odd thing to do, isn't it? Someone says, please come over to my house, you can stay with me, and they say, no, we'll actually just sleep on the street, that's fine with us, right? We'll just, ah, we don't need to. But actually, if you understand sort of what's going on at the time, that was a normal thing for people to do, for, to travel along, you would have this tent that you'd be carrying with you, and you'd bring it, and you'd just simply set it up in the town square for the night, because that was actually a safer place to sleep than outside of the city. 
right? The city, they had uh, walls and gates and whatever, and they'd close it off so animals aren't going to be attacking you, robbers aren't going to be coming in. So the town square should be a safe place to sleep for the night. But Lot here is insistent. He says, no, absolutely not. You're going to come over to my place. And then he says, so you can rise up early and go on your way. I'm not sure, maybe Lot already knew kind of what might happen to these men if they did that. He says, you can't sleep there, you've got to come to my house. And so eventually they decide, yes, okay, we'll come. And he prepares this feast for them and he gives them this this proper uh, hospitality that they would have expected at the time. But then everything starts going haywire, doesn't it? Right, verse four. It says, before they lay down, before they went to sleep, The men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. This is really the beginning of the sin of Sodom. This is where the indictment begins. Because we might be able to guess from context that when when these guys are surrounding the house and are demanding of Lot, bring out your guests because we want to know them, they're not just talking about an introduction, right? They're not just saying, hey, bring them out. We'd really like to get to know these guys. Actually, what they're saying is we want to know them in the same way that Adam knew Eve, They want to know these men. In fact, what they are saying is that bring out your guests. We actually want to have sex with them, and we are not going to take no for an answer. See, it's not a particularly nice way of phrasing it, but it is what they're doing. This is an attempt at a a violent homosexual rape of an entire city against these visitors. It's meant to make us a little bit uncomfortable as we read it, to see what these men are trying to do in this city. And yet what we see is that Lot actually isn't the greatest guy in this story either, right? He goes out of the door and he says, you know, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters. They have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men who have come under the shelter of my roof. The picture gets worse, if you can believe it. Lot comes out and he he is offering his daughters, who we later find out are actually engaged to other guys in the city. And actually... And lest, sorry, lest we misunderstand, the Bible isn't saying that was a good thing to do. It was a horrific thing to do. In fact, there's, there's a story later on in the Bible in the book of Judges where, where a guy actually does what Lot proposes, and it's probably one of the most horrifically evil stories in our Bible. It, it's a horrible thing that Lot is trying to do at this moment. He's more concerned about his guests than his own family. In fact, you could say nothing good is happening at this point, and that really is the point. In verse 9, we find out that the angel, or sorry, verse 9, they say, stand back. This fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Not only are they rebuking him, they're saying, what right do you have to actually judge us for anything that we do? You have no right to do that. See, at this point, 
The angels have seen everything they need to see. The investigation's over. It's clear what's going on in this city. So verse 10 says, but the men, these angels, reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. They struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. Say, enough's enough. We're stopping this right now and strikes everyone there blind, and yet they're still trying to find the door. See, that's the picture of Sodom. It's this violent, aggressive, perversely sexual place, and they will have no one judge them. In fact, as we continue on throughout the Bible, we see actually the the picture is even larger in terms of what was all happening in Sodom at the time. The prophet Ezekiel writes about Sodom. This is what he says. He says, behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess food, and prosperous ease, and did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. Ezekiel says, not only are there all of these other problems, in fact, they were prideful, they were arrogant, they had luxury upon luxury, ease of food, they had wealth, everything they had, and yet they still oppressed the poor. They still didn't give anything to others. In fact, there were people starving while they lived in luxury. Every pleasure was available to them, and they would share none. In fact, if you remember back in our story, back in Genesis chapter 13, Abraham and Lot are deciding where they should be going. And Lot looks out at Sodom and Gomorrah and looks, and he says, that is a good place to be. Because he looked and he saw all of the luxury, all of the wealth that Sodom and Gomorrah had and said, that's where I want to go. It was a place known for every abundance that they could have. Yet instead of giving their wealth, they oppressed the poor. See, the sin of Sodom was really extensive into every area of life. And actually, God is going to come and judge them for it. Now, before we continue on, we need to pause for just a second because there's something in this text that I am so worried that we are very easily going to misunderstand. In fact, it's the entire bit about homosexuality. You notice how we kind of just went right past that. See, the problem with this text is we're very liable to misunderstand what God is saying about homosexuality and the judgment that's coming. See, the question often comes up, what was Sodom's sin? What was the sin that they were convicted of? Was it the the violence? Was it the oppression? Was it the, the lack of consent that they were trying to do? Or was it the act of the homosexuality itself? What exactly is going on? See, later on in the Bible, in the book of Jude, this is what he says. It says, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. See, Jude is saying, look, actually Sodom and Gomorrah, they serve as this example of what God's judgment looks like. And he points out that the sin there was their sexual sin. 
Now, let me just be clear. The Bible clearly condemns violence and rape and all of these other things. There's no excusing that, and yet they are pointing us to that sexual sin itself. So the question is, well, why is that singled out? Is it that homosexuality is so much worse than all of these other sins? Well, actually, the answer is no. See, when the Bible talks about homosexuality, it, it puts it in this list of all of these other sins, all alongside things like adultery, stealing, gossiping, lying, and disobeying your parents. Alongside all of those, the Bible places homosexuality. It's not that it is a worse sin than anything else. So why is it pointed out here? Why is it the thing that Genesis 19 is focused on and Jude reminds us of? Well, I think the answer is that it is a more visible departure from God's intention. See, the book of Genesis begins with God creating the world. God creates this, this paradise and places in it Adam and Eve, and He places them into this, this marriage relationship between one man and one woman to the exclusion of all others, and into that relationship gives the gift of sexuality. That was its rightful place. But as we go through the book of Genesis, we see quickly that sin comes into the world and it distorts what God creates. It begins to twist and break it away from where God had originally created it to be. And so we end up with things like adultery, we end up with things like divorce, and we end up with things like homosexuality as well, along with all of the other sins that are mentioned in the Bible, all of them come as a result of this sin. So why is it this one that's chosen? Well, it's because it is the full turning around of what God had intended marriage and sexuality to be. See, what we're meant to understand here in Sodom is not that their sin was somehow worse, but it's the extent to which they had distorted what God had made uh, sexuality to be. It was a more visible manifestation of sin than others, a more visible rejection of God. And so now having said that, let me also say this. Do not think that just because your sin is more secret, it is somehow better. Just because your sin is less visible, it does not mean it is less horrendous before God. The secret indulgence of pornography is not somehow a lesser sin than a publicly visible homosexuality. Actually, they are both sin, and the Bible condemns both of them. We are not to think that somehow our pride, which doesn't take some physical form, is less horrible than others, or our greed, or our desires that we twist in all kinds of different ways. And actually, the Bible teaches us that we are all guilty of sin. We are all, we have all distorted God's intention for our lives and have earned His judgment. Now, let me say, as we wrap this little part, there is still a difference between temptation and action. 
There's a difference between being tempted towards something and acting upon it. The truth is all of us are tempted by um, all various kinds of things. We are tempted in all kinds of ways. Even Jesus himself was tempted. It's not a sin to be tempted. It's the question, what are you going to do with that? How are you going to act? What are you going to pursue? See, that's really the call of the Christian life is to turn away from sin and turn to Christ. But ultimately, what the story of Sodom is pointing us towards is actually to remind us that we are not called to point our fingers and say, look how bad they were. It's actually to remind us that all of us are sinners and we will stand before God's judgment as well. The warning isn't for them, it's actually for us. The warning is for us to look at our own lives. So that leads us then to the question, well, well how is it that, the, that a loving God would judge anyone? How is it that God is going to judge? How is a loving God is going to put people to death? What's going on? See, that's actually why we started where we did started by looking at their sin because it gives us the the first little bit, the first answer to the question, God is bringing this judgment not because he's bored, not because it's random. Actually, it's because it's a response to their sin. So let's look at the judgment of God. Look back at verse 12. The angels have grabbed Lot. They brought him back into the house. They've struck everyone blind. And then that says, and the med said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place because of the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Do you notice the reason that they gave? Do you notice the reason that the angels give? It wasn't just because God was on a whim. It's not because God went eeny, meeny, miny, mo, bang, Sodom, they're going to get it. Actually, it's God in response to the outcry that has been going on, to all of the injustices that have been happening in this city. God is coming to respond to it. To all the wickedness that has been going on in this city. And isn't that what we would expect a good God to do? Isn't that exactly what we would expect God to be doing? See, normally we ask the question, why would a good God destroy a city? Actually, I think this text is calling us to flip it around and say, why wouldn't a good God defend the weak? Why wouldn't a good God bring an end to injustice and oppression? Why wouldn't a good God fight for justice? Of course he would. Isn't that what we would expect God to do, to answer the cry of the helpless and the hopeless? In fact, that's exactly what God is doing. He is going to put a stop to their evil. In fact, one of the most common descriptions about who God is is that he is holy. He is perfect. He is pure. He is without stain or sin. All that he does is good and just, and he does not tolerate sin. Shouldn't we expect a God like that to deal with injustice? And actually, first of all, it it ought to make us thankful, shouldn't it? It ought to make us thankful to know that actually people don't get away with it in the end. 
How often have we had someone who's hurt us, who's abused us, who's caused us pain, that the police never are going to catch, that the courts will never convict, and it seems as like everyone just gets away with it. Actually, what the Bible is telling us here is actually they don't. It's not that we just get away with things. Right? How often do we hear of court cases where the guilty person actually ends up getting off because of a technicality? where there's just not enough evidence to bring a conviction, or when the guilty party just gets a slap on the wrist and they go on their way. See, the Bible says, actually, they don't just get away with it. That's why Paul can write in the New Testament. He says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. We actually don't need to take it into our own hands. We don't need to worry. God is the one who is in control. He is the one who's going to be able to take care of all of those things. We ought to actually be thankful. Oddly enough, the reaction to the justice and the judgment of God is thankfulness, thankful that people don't get away with things, that God is going to deal with all sin. And as just as that makes us thankful, it ought to also make us pause. God is going to deal with all sin. That includes our own. Look back with me at verse 14. Verse 14 says, So Lot went out, and he said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. Right, Lot goes out and he tries to warn his daughter's fiancés. All right, come on, get, get out of the city. Let's go. We don't want to wait. God is going to destroy this city. And they laugh at him. They look at him and they laugh and they say, no, he's not. We're fine. Look around. This is one of the most wealthy, luxurious places on earth. Nothing bad is going to happen to you. See, I think one of the amazing things is as we see this justice, as God brings justice to other people, we so often look and we're like, yes, I'm so glad they got what they deserve. And all the while, we are so blissfully ignorant that God is going to hold us accountable as well. That when God is going to deal with all sin, that includes the sin in our lives that includes the wrong things we have done. And it's so easy to be like Lot's future son-in-laws and say, it's not going to happen to me. You're making a joke. That doesn't apply to me, to think that we're somehow exempt. Paul again writes in 2 Corinthians, he says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. See, the Bible does say we will face a judgment. We will stand before God, and we will give an account for everything that we have done, all of the good things and all of the bad things that we have done. We shouldn't look at the judgment of God and say, ah, I'm so glad other people got judged. It ought to make us look and examine our own lives and say, I won't get away with it either. As much as we want to point fingers at the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, how, look how wicked they were, we ought to actually point back and look at our own lives where sin has been dwelling and has been 
growing. Romans 2 puts it this way. It says, do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Right? There's no time for hypocrites. Right? It's so easy for us to look around at other people and say, ah, look at what they're doing. Look, look how awful they are. Look at what they're getting. Oh, man, I'm so glad I'm not like that, even though we're doing the same things. We, sure, we excuse it in our own lives, and we point it out in others. Actually, what the Bible says is we also are going to be judged for that. And see, here's where I, I think we sometimes get this passage wrong, because we as Christians begin to think, oh, you know what? I get to stand where God stands in this story, right? I get to stand and, and look down at Sodom and say, ah, they are going to be judged, except the reality is we're actually sitting in Sodom, that we're not called to be God in this scenario. We're actually called to be more like Abraham. Abraham was the one who was pleading with God, interceding on behalf of others. That is where we are called to be, to realize that we ourselves should be facing that judgment, and that it's only God's mercy that we don't. Christians, have we been pleading for our neighbors, or are we sitting more like Jonah, hoping the city gets destroyed? We are going to face the same judgment. Our lives will be laid bare. Even Jesus says this to his disciples. He says, for nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. Right? Jesus warns us more than anyone about what is coming, about the judgment that we are going to face. In fact, Jesus says there won't be anything hidden. We can't hide behind something and say, oh, well, no one really knows about it, so it doesn't count. God actually knows about it. We are going to face a trial before God, and Jesus tells us the trial determines not just how we lived, but how we will live. It determines our eternity. And Jesus tells his followers about the glory, the eternal reward waiting in heaven, and also about the eternal punishment waiting in hell. This is a weighty matter. This is not to be skipped over lightly or easily. This is a warning because the consequences are dire. The question we really only need to ask is how are we going to look? When everything does get laid bare, when all of our motivations are known, when everything we've done in secret is made, put to the light, shown in public, how are we going to look? Let me be the first to say, I'm going to look bad. I'm going to look really bad. You might say, wow, this is a pretty depressing sermon, all things considered. This is pretty heavy. This is pretty depressing. Why are we talking about all this? And actually, it, the reason that we're here, the reason that we want to take time to, to look at the warning is because that's not all that this text says. In fact, it's not the end of the story. It doesn't end with simply the warning and this message of condemnation. It, it goes forward. We, we see the sin of Sodom, we see the judgment coming, but it points us forward to actually the mercy of God. 
Look back with me at verse 15. It says, as morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. The angels have been warning Lot all night. They've been telling Kate, you've got to get out of here. And what is Lot doing? He's lingering. He's dragging his feet. He doesn't really want to leave. Man, it's so comfortable in Sodom. It's so nice. And you know what? The sky looks great. It looks like it'll be a good day. Maybe we could just stick around one more day. Maybe we don't have to leave. And then what does it say? God in his mercy grabbed him by the hand and dragged him out of the city. You are getting out of here, Lot, right? God is going to be merciful to him, seemingly whether Lot wanted it or not. God was going to show him mercy. And so Lot gets out of there, and immediately he begins to complain again. Well, ah, I can't get all the way to the hills. That's so far away. Just let me go to this little city. Let me, let me stay there. And God says, all right, I'll be merciful to you again. You can stay in that city, but, but go there now. And so Lot takes off, and we read in verse 24, God rains down sulfur and fire, destroying the cities and even the land. We're not told exactly how this happens. You know, we always kind of want a scientific reason. You know, it was an earthquake that that shot up a bunch of sulfur from the surrounding area, and lightning often accompanies that. Perhaps that's what's going on. We don't know. Verse 26, we see Lot's wife. Lot's wife turns around. Even as they're going towards this safety, she turns around because she's still longing to be back in Sodom. Maybe I can still go there. Maybe it'll all be okay. I don't have to leave. And it says she is turned into a pillar of salt. I don't think this means that she literally became like a salt lick, right? As if her entire chemical body just suddenly, now she's salt, No, I actually think more likely what happened is, as this devastation is going, she looks back, she stops, she wants to go, and it overtakes her, right? If you've ever seen pictures or or some of the archaeological stuff they found in Pompeii, right, this volcano erupted, and it happened so quickly that people didn't even leave their homes. You can see outlines of where people were laying, their whole bodies being covered almost like a statue. I think that's really what's going on here, that they are that she was immediately covered and all the salt and the dust from everywhere just covered her entire body. And yet God shows mercy to Lot. God shows his mercy to Lot even at this moment. And we might ask the question, well, why is he doing that? Lot certainly doesn't seem to deserve it at any point in this story, does he? He's offering up his daughters. He's dragging his feet. His wife doesn't even want to go at all. She turns around. Why does Lot get saved? And to make it even more interesting, look at what 2 Peter writes. In the book of 2 Peter, this is what it's written. It says, and if he, God, rescued righteous Lot greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man, 
lived among them day after day. He was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Peter is saying that Lot was righteous? I mean, is he reading the same story that I am? Because it doesn't really look like it. Sure, he didn't like what the men of Sodom were doing, but it's not like he had a great alternative lined up. How is Lot righteous? Why is God saving him? I think we get an answer to our question in verse 29, very last verse. It says, So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities. Lot is saved out of this judgment, not because of anything he did, but because God remembered Abraham. And we're left to wonder, okay, what, what exactly does that mean? Right? Is it just saying, well, well, God had Abraham suddenly come to mind? Oh, right, Abraham exists. I'll save Lot. Right? How, how exactly is that going on? Let me give you a couple reasons why I think that, or a couple things that I believe that is calling us to consider. The first is that Abraham had been praying that God would deliver the righteous out of destruction. It's exactly what Abraham had been praying to God just last chapter, Lord, would you save the city on account of the righteous? Would you save the righteous who are there? And I think that includes Lot, which is a weird thing to say because he's done nothing but get it wrong since we started. How is Lot righteous? And I'm going to say it's the same way that Abraham is declared righteous. See, remember all the way back in Genesis chapter 15, it says that Abraham is declared righteous by faith. That is, he trusts in the Word of God. He trusts that God is going to do what he can, and he is declared to be righteous. I think that's the same way that Lot here is declared righteous. It is by his faith. Sure, is he dragging his feet? Yep. But he is still going out, and he believed the Word of God. He believed what God was going to do, and in fact, he trusted in the God of Abraham. See, lastly, I think when it says that God remembered Abraham, it's not just talking about his prayer. It's not just talking about the way he is declared righteous. Actually, it's talking about his covenant that he has made. God made this covenant, this agreement with Abraham that one day through him would come an offspring who would bring blessing to all the earth. Actually, it's looking forward to the coming of Jesus. Through Abraham would come Jesus many, many years later who would actually do the same thing that Abraham was doing, that is interceding on behalf of others. And it's through our faith in Jesus that we are declared righteous. Except the thing is with Jesus, with Jesus, he actually takes the punishment. Jesus actually takes the judgment in our place. He intercedes for others and actually is able to make them righteous. He would take the judgment on himself and cleanse those who by faith trusted in him. See, that's what Jesus is doing on the cross. It's why we sing these songs about how amazing the cross is. It's because there we find Jesus standing in the way. 
Jesus is the one who takes the judgment of God, so we are able to be made righteous through faith. One of my favorite verses, passages in the Bible, actually comes out of the book of 1 Corinthians. It's a book we studied here at Central not long ago. Chapter 6 says this. Paul is writing to this church. He says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed you are sanctified, you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Paul writes to this church and he says, you were in Sodom. You were all of these things. Everything that Sodom was convicted of, that was describing you. But God came in Jesus Christ, and He washed you clean. He made you holy. He declared you righteous by faith in Jesus Christ. God grabbed you by the hand and dragged you out of Sodom, not because of anything you have done, not because you had deserved it, but all because of His mercy and His love overflowing into our salvation. See, that is what this text is pointing us towards. That is what Sodom is warning us about, but calling us to see the salvation of God and His mercy to us. Does God judge sin? Yeah. And it should cause us to tremble. It's a warning sign to us that one day we will give an account for our lives for every hidden thing that will be made known. But does God love us? Absolutely. And it should cause us to rejoice and to praise Him, to thank God that He sent Jesus to stand in the way and to take that punishment in our place so that anyone who would trust in Him who would repent of their sins, turn away, say, I want nothing more to do with Sodom, not turning around, but saying, I'm leaving it for good. Those who would trust in Jesus would be saved. See, the warning of Sodom leads us to the mercy of Jesus. That's what the sign is there for. The sign is there to show us not only what is going to happen when we come before God, but to show us how we can be made right. See, the truth is, I I can't talk about this too long without even talking about what God has done in my own life. See, the truth is, I I grew up a pretty good kid, but I also grew up a good liar. I I found out really early on that if you wanted people to believe you, all you had to do was lie. Just say the right thing. Say what they wanted to hear, and everything would go really smoothly. And so I just started doing that for pretty much everything. I could get away with all kinds of stuff because I could just lie to people. Who cares? Then one day, my uncle was killed in a car accident. He was probably about my age now. And he was killed in a car accident suddenly on the way to go to the grocery store. It made me realize something. That at any moment, it might be the time when I stand before God. 
And he was someone that I couldn't lie to, that I couldn't actually deceive, that I wouldn't be able to make myself look good no matter what I said because he knew the truth and he knew what was going on in my heart and what I had done. I realized I didn't have a hope outside of Jesus outside of Jesus actually coming and taking the punishment for my sins, changing my heart, I didn't have a hope. And so one night on my bed, with my eyes full of tears, I asked that Jesus would forgive me, that he would change my heart, that he would transform my life. I wouldn't be a liar, but that I would actually be able to speak the truth This morning, would you you be made right with God? Would you actually trust in Him, the one who faced judgment on your behalf? Please don't ignore the warning signs. Truth is, we will stand before God's judgment when we will be seen for exactly who we are. But the good news is that Jesus took our punishment. Jesus took our place, and in him we have this hope of eternal life with him, of eternal glory in heaven. Would you trust in Jesus who has paid the debt in full? This morning as we close, we're going to conclude with communion. So I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward as well as those who are serving communion but I really can't think of a much more appropriate way to end this sermon, to end this service, than rather to look and to see, to be reminded of what Jesus has done for us. See, communion is the symbol of what Jesus has done. It's his body that was given. It's his blood that was shed for us. It's a reminder of the punishment that he took in our place. So this morning, I'm going to say, if you are here And if that describes you, you've placed your trust in Jesus, you're walking in obedience to Him, He is your Lord and Savior, let me invite you simply to come forward, receive communion together, this reminder of Jesus' death. But if you're here this morning and you're still working through what does it mean to follow Jesus, what does all of this look like, I invite you to simply stand with us, sing uh, together, consider what it is that Jesus has done. Come talk with me afterwards. I'd love to continue to help and to work through all of these things. Because when we didn't know Him, Christ died for us. God's love has overflowed in His mercy for us. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much. Lord, we thank you for the warning that you give. Lord, for the... Father, for what you remind us of, that you put before us the reality of where we stand before you. But Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that you are always working through him. And Lord, I pray, would we trust in you as the one who has taken our punishment in our place, Father, would we delight to make you known, to see you revealed to all the world. Father, make us into ambassadors for your sake because your mercy has saved us. Father, I pray, make us grateful, make us joyful this morning.
You are our Savior. Pray these things in your name. Amen.